This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Hey there, welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, the founder of MrDad.com. Esther Wojcicki, Woj to her many friends and admirers, is famous for three things. Teaching a high school class that has changed the lives of thousands of kids, inspiring Silicon Valley legends like Steve Jobs, and raising three high-performing daughters, Susan, who's the YouTube CEO, Janet, who's at UCSF Medical Center, and Anne, the founder of 23andMe. What do these three accomplishments have in common? Well, they're a result of trick, T-R-I-C-K. That's Woj's secret to raising successful people. Trust, respect, independence, collaboration, and kindness. Simple lessons, but the results, she says, and a lot of other people agree, are radical. My guest for this half of the show is, indeed, Esther Wojcicki, and her methods are the opposite of helicopter parenting. As we face an epidemic of parental anxiety, she says, relax. Talk to infants as if they are adults. Allow teenagers to pick projects that relate to the real world and their own passions and let them figure out how to complete them. Above all, let your child lead. We'll be talking with Esther about raising, educating, and managing people to their highest potential. And to paraphrase Jeff Goldblum, change your parenting, change the world. I'm Armin Brott, and we'll talk about how to change the world when Positive Parenting continues right after this. This is the story of a very special woman. Just a few knew about her superpowers. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her Mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources at aarp.org caregiving. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Esther Wojcicki, who is the author of How to Raise Successful People, Simple Lessons for Radical Results. Esther, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for including me. I'm happy to be here. So that's a, a rather broad title, Raising Successful People. I think probably in, in a way that would be, if you had to sum up every parent's or every responsible parent's anyway, desire for their children, it would be to do just that, that they should be successful in their life, however they define success. Right. So did you want me to define success? Well, why don't you define how you see success? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it's a sliding scale, but how, what, what's your definition of success? So my definition of success is that it's a, per, a self-directed learner who feels empowered to do whatever their dreams are, whatever encompasses in their dreams, encompassed in their dreams. And um, kind of reminds me a little bit of James Franco and what he said, uh, and one of the things reasons that he became sort of, uh, one of my lifelong friends is because he said that I believed in him and his dreams. And uh, I think that makes a big difference. You want to have one person that believes in your dreams, and then when they do, then you believe in yourself and believe in your dreams. 
So that's what I think about when I think about successful people. Okay. I, I mean, there's a question that always comes up with these things, which is how, what about a child who doesn't really seem to have dreams? And I, I, I think you could say, well, we all have dreams, but I think there's a lot of kids that, that take, they don't know what the dreams are exactly. They're not sure that they're good at anything or that they have any great interests or they're, they're just okay just going through life as it is. How do you help a child figure out what their dreams are? The number one way you do that, help them find their dreams, is by giving them an opportunity to explore and to do things independently. And unfortunately, the education system does just the opposite of that. They control what you do pretty much all day long. But the kid goes from a situation in school where they're controlled all the time to a situation at home where they have tiger parents. And these tiger parents, otherwise known as helicopter parents, they feel that they know what is best for the child, and frequently they do. But, you know, that doesn't doesn't encourage creativity, doesn't encourage um, a sense of empowerment. It just encourages dependence because the child feels dependent on the parent to tell them, like, what's the right thing to do and, you know, should they be, you know, playing with this person or that person. Um, you... You want your child to have ideas, and even if they're wacky ideas, you can say, well, that's a little bit out there, um, but let's see whether or not we can't um, do that. Maybe we'll refine it a little bit here. And um, if you just look at all the CEOs that dropped out of college or that were probably not the world's greatest students in elementary or high school, they were people that had some pretty unusual ideas, and um, they were not the a student's following direction. So what you want to do is encourage your child to be, it's okay not to be perfect. That's the main thing. Wait, it's okay, it's okay not to be, it's okay not to be perfect, you said? Yeah, okay okay not to be perfect. Yeah, well, it's probably, it's probably a good thing not to be perfect because that'll keep you pushing to do better, hopefully, right? If you, if you, if you achieve perfection, then where do you go from there? That's right. But also I think the thing is that most kids are afraid to take a risk because they're afraid of making mistakes. And so the idea is to say mistakes are just a part of life, and especially in school. That's why you go to school. You go to school because you want to learn how to do something, and you're not going to be able to learn how to do it unless you make a few mistakes. Nobody learns to swim the minute they jump in the pool. Exactly, yeah. So the the method, if if we can call it that, of your helping to to raise successful people, and, and as we go through the the time that we have together, I want you to talk a little bit about the raising the uh, three successful daughters that you have. But you've got it, uh, an acronym: Trick, Trust, Respect, Independence, Collaboration, and Kindness. I don't know that we're going to get through all five steps, but let's start with with trust, because that 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 as you just explained with the helicopter parents or the the whatever you want to call them, snowplow parents or tiger parents, it's a, a similar kind of a thing. Uh, it's hard for us to trust, especially in the beginning, because we think that we do know better. And I think in the beginning, we do know better. We're trying to protect them, and you have to learn how to back off and how to let the child make some decisions. How do you begin to foster the trust in yourself and your child? So one of the things people need to realize is you don't have to do this all in one big step. You can do it in little steps. You give your child a little bit more 
responsibility and trust, and then you build upon it. You know, one of the things you can do is, like, for example, have them help make their own breakfast. You know, that provides a lot of trust because, you know, who knows what they could be, right? But you can say, here's the breakfast cereals. We've been doing it for the last, I don't know, two years, three years, however old they are. And now I want to see whether you can make breakfast yourself. They might end up with half the cereal on the floor, but if you don't make a big fuss about it, you know, just the fact that they can feel like they're taking care of themselves builds trust in themselves. And the reason trust is so important is because when you, the adult, trust a child, then they feel more empowered, and then they trust themselves. They can, like, oh, I can do that. You know, my dad, he let me do it. Um, I think mm -hmm. we need to have more of that instead of the business of, you know, I'm going to do it for you, and then it'll be done right, and then you don't need to worry about it. So Sir Ken Robinson said something which is very important. He said, if you're not prepared to be wrong, you'll never come up with anything original. Hmm. So we might want to keep that in mind. That's a great quote. So I, I would imagine that some of your coming up with this philosophy, the, the trick philosophy, was rooted in making your own mistakes and having been wrong yourself. What were some of the, the stumbles that you had as you were raising your own kids were you, that, that led you to, fight, to finally discovering that you ought to be doing a little bit more trusting than you were? Well, you know, it actually stemmed from my own childhood, my own childhood that was not a very positive childhood because I was a child of poor immigrants, and so we didn't have a lot of money. We didn't have the proper health care. There were a lot of issues that I discussed in the book. And so I wanted to make sure that my children did not have a childhood like that. I wanted them to feel empowered. I wanted them to feel self like they were in control. And so in order to feel that way, you have to help your child do things. And otherwise, they aren't going to feel in control. And so they learned to ride bikes early. They learned to swim early. They walked down the street early. Um, today, I know it's not allowed in a lot of areas. You can't let a five- or six-year-old walk down the street to school by themselves because it's against the law. But there are other things you can do that empower them, you know, around the house or in the garden or, you know, at a family gathering. You might want to just break up some of the things that are you're doing into little bits and see, like, mm -hmm. what can my child do to help out? You know, the, the next step on the on the path is respect. And I think that in, in some ways that would be one I would expect that you'd get some pushback because there's a lot of parents who see the parent-child relationship as very hierarchical and the respect should be coming from the child to the parent, not the other way around. So explain what you mean by respect and, and why we need to be showing some to the kids as well. You want your child to respect you, and I think it's natural for most children to respect their parents. But what's not natural is for a parent to respect a child and their ideas, because sometimes those ideas are a little wacky um, because they're kids. But if you can find some of the ideas that they've come up with and, you know, say, wow, that's a good idea, even though it's kind of a little off base, you know, that gives them the opportunity to try another one. They'll feel more empowered to try another one. So when you're respected, you feel good about yourself. If you just think about it in society, part of the reason that we all want to have fancy cars and clothing with labels on it and so forth is because we want respect. And so if you can 
give your child respect, they're going to feel much happier about themselves and then coming up with ideas that are original and um, ideas that, you know, they believe in. You, I mean, I don't know. This is an issue that we discuss, we haven't discussed yet, but, you know, how do you get your kids to want to do something and to be empowered? And that is because you respect their ideas and they have these little these dreams and mm-hmm. you want to let, help them believe in their dreams. You know, right. I just remember lots of kids wanted to be a fireman when they were little. Well, it's like, okay, let's see how long you want to be a fireman. But, you know, you, buy what, you do whatever you can to help them believe in that dream. And then as time goes on, maybe they'll switch and say, oh, instead of that, I want to be, you know, a computer coder or who knows what they want to be. You know, they change. We all change. Yeah. Yeah. Talking to Esther Wojcicki, who's the author of How to Raise Successful People, Simple Lessons for Radical Results. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to keep talking to Esther about the rest of the items in the the trick protocol. And uh, also, again, uh, what she just mentioned about how to get kids to want to do things. I'm Armin Brott. You're listening to Positive Parenting. If you love them enough to listen to them practice the same song on tuba, please be done. Over and over and over and over and over. Then surely you'll check NHTSA.gov slash the right seat to make sure they're correctly buckled in the back seat. Sounds good, honey. Check today at NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Act Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brown. If you're just joining us, talking with Esther Wojcicki, who's the author of How to Raise Successful People, Simple Lessons for Radical Results. And uh, since you mentioned it just before the break, why don't you explain a little bit more about how to get kids to want to do something? That was something that I was uh, asking about in the beginning, about especially kids who are are just not internally really strongly driven. And there are plenty of kids like that who who don't. I mean, some parents are lucky enough and they have kids who know exactly what they want to do and they're very motivated. And, uh, well, I actually have, I have one niece like that and two nephews, her brothers, who are, they just want to play basketball. They don't, you know, they're, they're not, they don't want to be basketball players, but they, that's what they want to do. They just want to hang out and play. Um, so how do you, how do you get the, the kids who are, are less internally motivated I don't want to say on track because that kind of implies that we have something in mind for them, but how do you get them to find their own track? Well, one of the number one ways is not to boss them around, to give them an opportunity to be bored. I know that sounds a little crazy, but I actually posted an article this summer in which I said, let your kids have an opportunity to be bored. They do not have to have a lesson every day of the week. Um, because when they are actually bored and when they think about things they might want to do, um, they become creative. And I just think of, you know, the creativity that a lot of people in, encountered in their lives when they were bored. If you just read the history of a lot of famous people, um, they came up with those ideas when they were sitting around not engaged. So one of the problems we have now is that when you're bored, what do you do? You reach for an electronic device, yeah. and you watch it. 
So there's a correlation between all the time you spend on an electronic device and the lack of creativity because all you're doing is watching. Mm -hmm. So we need to be careful. And so you want a kid to have their own ideas. Give them the chance to do that. That's the way to do it. Well, that feeds us right into the next item on the list, which is independence, the I and trick. And in, in a way, it's you're, you're almost undercutting that, that you want to give them independence to do things on their own, but you don't want to let them just sit around in front of the TV or playing on their phone all day. So right. some, in some independence... Things that are not allowed. No playing on the phone all day and no TV. So everything else, you know, you can have, be part of sport, you can call your friend and have them come over, you can play, you know, you can go out in the backyard and play, you can ride your bike, you can, there's so many other things to do. And so that is one of the things that we need to let kids direct it. Because what you want is you want children that have self-direction. They like, maybe they can use their phone or their electronic device if they're looking something up, like how to do it, how to be a better um, how to draw a certain thing that you want to draw or how to paint. or There's a lot of how-tos on the Internet that can help you learn things. I think that's the most important thing. And secondly, it's really important for parents especially not to be worried about what other people think. You know, so if your kid is not, you know, taking all these classes and doing everything that is like the kid next door, that's okay for your kid because we're not all the same. And actually, as I said, if they stay home and enjoy maybe drawing or listening to music or, you know, making um, some kind of a movie, if they want to make a movie, that is, requires a lot of creativity. That's fine. You know, they don't have to be the number one or two tennis player in the area. No one will care 20 years from now. <laughs> well, somebody might. I mean, there's going to be the trophy on the on the mantle that somebody will say, what was that about? But I guess, yeah, it's, uh, 20 years from now, it doesn't make much of a difference. Um, but that right. that is all about building resilience, though, still, that the independence, it's, it seems to be part of the same general header. Right. It's part of the same general thing. There's another study I wanted to just quote from the New York Times. It's, uh, they published the results of it. It's like a 19-year-old, 19-year study that revealed Kindergarten students with these two skills are twice as likely to obtain a college degree, and it has nothing to do with reading. Hmm. So I just wonder what your readers, what your listeners might be thinking. Nothing to do with reading. Nothing to so do with reading. reading. All right, nothing so. to do with reading. You want me to tell yeah. you? Yes, please. Okay. Social emotional skills. Those are the most important things. And you don't get social emotional skills when you interact with an electronic device. You have yeah, to interact that's absolutely with someone true. Else. Yeah, yeah, and that that brings us to the next the next letter and trick of a collaboration. And you don't you don't uh, do much collaboration if you don't have some social or emotional skills. That's right. So you not only collaborate with your friends, and um, but my suggestion is also collaborating with your child. So it's collaborative parenting. When you want your child to do something, it's instead of just dictating, it's a good idea to say, let me tell you why I think this is a good idea. It's really cold out there, and you have to put on a jacket, because if you don't, then you might get sick. And they can say, well, I don't care about getting sick. But then what you want to do is collaborate and talk to them about it. 
as opposed to just forced to do things. And, you know, just putting on a jacket is one example, but parents force kids to do a lot of things. And then when they become teenagers and they don't do any of those things, the reason that they don't is because the why was never included in that explanation. So you've raised three high-performing daughters. Susan's the head of, uh, of YouTube. You've got Janet at UCSF Medical Center and Anne, who founded uh, 23andMe. Do you think that they would say that some of these things that we've been discussing, the TRIC, we didn't get to the K, but that's okay, um, that, that that was instrumental in their success? Yeah, I think so, because they were empowered early on. They were given an opportunity for self-direction early on, and so they would say yes. And the K, which is kindness, was really important because when they made mistakes, I was kind. And I think that that needs to happen in schools, too. When you make a mistake and a lot of mistakes, you should be able to redo it, iterate, iterate. You know, you should be able to redo whatever assignment it was that you didn't do well on so that you can be the best you can be. And um, I don't think that's part of the school system. However, there is a company called Mastery Connect that's part of something called Instructor that is doing exactly that. Mastery, and then you master it, then you get the grade. And I think really? that's a better system. And that's within a school system, or is that a separate program? How, how does it work? It's within a school system. It's a grading system. So if you want to, instead of grading A, B, C, D, F, you grade a mastery system. So you give kids, you give them interim grades, interim, uh, like, where are you? You know, you're 20% towards your goal, you're 60% towards your goal, and now you're 100% towards your goal, and you've mastered it. And then you get a grade. So it's, it can be incorporated in any public or private school. It's called Mastery Connect. Wow, that sounds fascinating. Has it been shown to be successful? Cause I, I, you, you think that there would be different levels of mastery, or maybe you don't have to completely master something? Or hey, what, is, what does the word mastery even mean to some extent? Uh, enough to get by or enough to... I think that's defined by the teacher. So, for example, you know, you're mastering your uh, multiplication tables. So you do, uh, they have to define, you know, you can get X number wrong. Or you're mastering, you know, how to, you read a certain number of books and you master this grade level or this particular Mm. topic. You know, so um, what it does, it's a motivator as opposed to discouraging you. If you just think about, like writing an essay. You write an essay and then you get comes back with all these red marks and then a bad grade, a D or a C or something like that. And so how do you feel about writing the next essay? Hmm. Well, yeah. not yeah. too good. So my philosophy is you can put all the red marks on, but no grade until the student revises and then they revise again until it's correct. And at that point, then they get an A. And how do you help the teachers, though, who are going to say, oh, boy, this is going to be a huge amount more work for me if I have to go through five drafts of every paper? How do you... I say peer edit, a lot of peer editing, and also instead of assigning so many papers, assign fewer papers and give students an opportunity to master. Because when they learn to master, when they master the essay, it's the typical thing is the five-paragraph essay. When they master that and they can do it anywhere. Esther Wojcicki is the author of How to Raise Successful People, Simple Lessons for Radical Results. Esther, thanks so much for joining us. Great to have you. 
Yes, honored to be here. Thank you very much for including me, and I wish all the parents out there all the best. One in three adults has prediabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has prediabetes, with early diagnosis, prediabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its prediabetes awareness partners. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brunt, and it's time for an Ask Mr. Dad segment. Dear Mr. Dad, my wife is pregnant, and I'm not sure I'm cut out to be a father. My wife and I have been talking, and it's clear she has high expectations. She wants me to be as involved as she is, playing with the baby, reading to it, feeding, changing, and everything else. The problem is that I'm just not interested in being that involved, and I have no idea what to do anyway. Plus, I like my life just the way it is. As you can imagine, though, my wife's not happy at all about my attitude. Is there something wrong with me? Is there anything I can do that will somehow make me more interested in being a good dad and save my marriage? What fascinating questions. Of course, it would have been better if you and your wife could have had the discussions you're having now before she got pregnant, but better late than never. To answer your first question first, no, there's nothing wrong with you. A lot of guys are perfectly happy with their lives just as they are, and the prospect of caring for a child can be frightening. However, given that she's already pregnant and you're clearly interested in staying married, the fact is that your life is about to change in a big way and it won't ever be quite the same again. In addition, not everyone, women included, has the desire or is cut out to be a hands-on parent. And even if they did, not all couples will be equally involved. In my experience, one of the main reasons men aren't interested in becoming fathers is that they don't understand just how critical they are to their children's development and how being an actively involved dad can positively affect them and their partners. So before you decide to opt out of being a dad, consider this. Children with involved dads do better in school. They get better grades and test scores. They have a better chance of going on to college. They have more fulfilling careers. They do better on all sorts of IQ and intelligence tests. They get along better with their peers, manage their emotions better, have fewer discipline problems, and are less likely to start smoking or drinking or to become teen parents. The overwhelming percentage of people in prisons and the overwhelming percentage of school shooters and ISIS fighters were raised in homes with absent or uninvolved fathers. The more involved you get with your child, the easier it'll become and the more you'll want to do it. It actually gets kind of addicting. The longer you wait, the harder it'll be. If you don't start now, one of these days you'll turn around and your child will be 18 and you'll wish you'd had a better relationship. The more involved you are, the happier your wife will be, the better your marriage will be, and the longer it'll last. Dads who are involved actively with their kids tend to be happier in general and more satisfied in their jobs. So, how to begin? Step one is to get educated. I'd suggest you pick up a copy of my book, The Expectant Father. Getting involved during pregnancy will make it easier to be involved after the baby arrives. And once the baby does arrive, get a copy of The New Father, A Dad's Guide to the First Year, 
which is filled with tons of age-appropriate activities and suggestions. Then, jump in. It's a little hard in the early months when just about all the baby does is sleep and fill diapers, but babies just want to be with you. They don't really care where you're going or what you're saying or what you're doing. Reading and playing are great, but if your baby's healthy, there's no reason you can't take him or her almost anywhere you'd go on your own, whether that's to the grocery store, museums, restaurants, or even outdoor concerts, just as long as you're not standing too close to the speakers. If you've got a comment or a question or a suggestion for us here at Positive Parenting, please do send it over. You can do that through our website at mrdad.com. And while you're there, check out archives of this show and also lots of the other free resources that we have available for you there. Again, that's all at mrdad.com. We'll be back next week with another show for you. But there's a lot more of this Positive Parenting show coming right up, so don't go anywhere. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brat, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. Hey, is that a faucet running? Nope, that's not a faucet. That's a river rushing through the forest. It is? Yeah, forest rivers provide over 100 million people with clean water to drink. The water comes straight from the forest to us. In fact... What? I can't hear you because of the vacuum! That's not a vacuum. That's the trees in the forest cleaning up the air we breathe. How do trees clean the air? They soak up the dirty air on their leaves, branches, and trunks, which means clean air for us. Hmm. Cool. I didn't know that. Yep. But the forest does more than give us clean air and water. It gives us shade for hot days, birds to listen to, and trees to climb. Wow. That's awesome. I didn't know how cool the forest could be. Hey, let's go explore some more. Visit the forest today and enjoy all it does just for you. To learn more about the forest and find one near you, go to discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Now, get ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brott from the MrDad.com radio network. Hey there, welcome to the second part of today's Positive Parenting Show. I'm Armin Brott, the founder of MrDad.com. We're glad you stayed with us. A variety of people can raise a child and have relationships with him. A child whose parents have divorced often has two sets of parents. There are countless combinations of biology and adoption and remarriage, and every version of a parent-child relationship has its own particularities. But there remains between the primary caretaker and the child the core fact that it is the grown-ups, usually but not always the parents, who have the authority to make decisions, large and small, that will shape the child's development and the child and caretaker's relationship with each other. No, I'm talking here about authority, not discipline. Discipline refers to rules and a code of behavior, as well as training to obey the code and punishments for disobedience. Discipline of children requires strategies, techniques, and consequences when the rules have been broken. Authority is having the power to enforce the rules. Because you are responsible for a dependent child, you have the power and, as he gets older, influence over even the smallest and most intimate aspects of her life. Just having the power and influence is not enough, though. Reliability is key. Your child won't believe you if you don't feel that your power is legitimate and appropriate, something you communicate through your behavior, 
both verbal and nonverbal. In this part of today's show, we're going to be focusing on parental authority, what it is and how to get it back. I'm Armin Brott. It all starts right after this. Three, two, one. Oh, no. Which button am I... When every second counts, you can't wing it. Uh, Guys, a little help up here. In a home fire, you may have less than two minutes to get out. So make a family home fire escape plan. Then practice home fire drills at least twice a year so everyone knows what to do when they hear... Prepare your family at ready.gov slash fire drill. Brought to you by FEMA, the Ag Council, and Make Safe Happen. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Adelia Moore, who's the author of Being the Grown-Up, Love, Limits, and the Natural Authority of Parenthood. Adelia, thanks for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. I'm glad to be here. I think we need to start off with, with the definition of authority and maybe natural authority, because I think that's one of the, the things I think I, I think parents struggle with a lot, is they... Sometimes a lot of people see parenthood and or raising children as a hierarchical thing, that we are the authority figures and they should do what we tell them to do and we know better. And uh, so let, let's start off with a, a common definition that we can understand anyway as we move forward in our discussion about what you mean by natural authority and authority in general. Yeah, I, I'm glad that you separated the two because I have found that people have been a bit nervous <laughs> at the thought of authority, and in fact, it's related to, you know, the whole reason I wrote the book in the first place. Um, so it, it, it actually is pretty hard for me to give a definition, which is, you know, my book in a way is a definition, but um, I'll start with natural authority, and then I'll give sort of a, um, a little postscript about authority as, as, as it's been thought about in developmental psychology. For me, authority translates almost into presence um, and comes from the responsibility that parents, as the big animals who have little animals dependent on them, um, are responsible for, the responsibility that parents have for their small animals. And um, for me, I'm, I'm very interested in ethology, which is the study of animal behavior, and I got interested in it um, back when I was getting my master's in child development because I have I four sons. At the time, I had three. And I was intrigued with how they interacted with each other. And it's something that, as a therapist, I stay very tuned into. And I noticed um, years ago in my clinical practice that um, there were many parents who didn't feel comfortable with authority. And in this case, I was probably more fo- in the beginning. I was more focused on discipline. So, authority would be in this case sort of the influence, power, mm-hmm. you know, to get kids to do what you want them to and, do. And they didn't feel comfortable with being that authority figure, or they yeah, didn't I, feel, I or they had two, problems with two the, with authority. That parents went, and I think this has continued to be true in my observation, which is some would go in the direction of therefore. Uh, just screaming and yelling because they couldn't get the kids to do what they wanted them to do and they needed to do, and and certain things have to be done in the course of a day. 
And the other direction was, well, just give the kids what they want, let the kids decide. But the trouble is you still have to get kids out of the house. There's still things that need to be done. So giving kids that power and that authority um, doesn't really work. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I developed was this idea. I mean, I, I'm, it, it turns out that the phrase natural authority uh, first occurred in my life in a book I read in college, which I didn't remember until I came across it doing research for the book. Um, and and that author, George Dennison, talked about the way of the world, what children observe about what adults do. And to me, that's why it's natural. Small animals depend on the big ones, and they see how the world is working. Um, for me, the, what's very important is to emphasize this traditional um, view of authority that was developed in developmental psychology or studied by a woman named Diana Bomrand. And she made she distinguished three kinds of um, parenting styles in relation to authority. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've, I've actually written quite a bit about her authoritarian. Yeah, you know about yeah. it, and I don't know if your listeners do. So just very briefly, sure. um, on the one end you have permissive, and on the other end you have authoritarian, and in the middle you have authoritative. But what parents don't understand, I think, usually about that, that I really have keyed into, and I think you do too in your positive parenting philosophy, is that there are two dimensions that parents are relating to their kids around. And one is responsiveness, and one is demandingness. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's in, in my title, it's Love and Limits. And the, if the permissive parent is high on responsiveness but low on demandingness, so they're responding to their kids' needs and desires, but they're demanding very little of them. The authoritarian parent is high on demandingness but low on responsiveness. So they're making right. demands of their kids, but they don't really care what their kids need, you know, what their kids' opinions are, if the, you know, all sorts of things. And then in the, it's not really in the middle, but in another, the, another version is the authoritative, which is high in responsiveness and high in demandingness. So you can make demands of your child, and you should and you need to, but you also need to pay attention to the fact that the child is another person with a lived experience in the world with whom you're connected, who you want to trust you. So yeah. it's really, I've sort of taken that um, further and said, you know, it's, it's because you have, your authority includes that connection, I guess is the best yeah. way to put it. I'm wondering and if, if you would... the authority is in your relationship and not in the particular strategies that you choose yeah. You know, on any given day. Well, speaking of the relationship, I'm kind of wondering if, if, if we were to try to translate the title of being the grown-up, would, be, would you be okay with something like, don't be their friend? Well, I really, as a psychologist, when I work with families, I especially always like to have a positive way of thinking about it rather than a negative. <laughs> okay, that's fair. That's so fair. that's why I chose the title I did. Right. But... And, I, and I didn't even say be the grown-up. Just being, to me, right. I'm making a distinction also between parenting, parenting styles, and parenthood. And I'm talking about parenthood. Right. And the essence right. of parenthood is being the grown-up. It's a condition you are. So, um, so, I, so I guess I wouldn't be comfortable with that suggestion. Okay. But I think you're right, and I think that's a direction a lot of parents go, and I think that comes partly from anxiety about rejection. Yeah. Because in a certain way, authority and power can feel like separation you know, from a child, or yeah. fear of separation. Well, I think that, that, that in my jaded view of the world these days, I think that there's a, a lot of 
the idea that you mentioned at the very beginning we were just talking about, about people not being comfortable with authority, is people are afraid to take the lead in the parenting dance, if you want. Yeah, and, that's a great way to put and, it. And, in, yeah. you know, the, the, there has to be a little bit of a hierarchy. You can respect your children's opinions, and you should be responsive to their needs, but at some point the parents need to have 51% of the votes. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a great way to put it because, it, as I'm saying, you either have to go to school or have to provide education in some form. Kids need sleep, kids need food, kids need a roof over their head, and it's up to you to take the lead. And I, and I do talk a lot about interaction, and, um, and, and it is a dance in which you're taking the lead. And, you know, the, to me, the abiding image for it is really make way for ducklings. Um, you <laughs> Just know, the, talking about the mother that duck book. or the mother goose or the and yeah. swans often, and geese too, are often together, both parents with a passel of um, little ones swimming behind them. And, you know, that's a much simpler version of what I'm talking about. It's, it's called imprinting, and it's not the same as attachment, and it's not, but it's related to it. And it's sort of me, when in doubt, okay, they are looking to me. You know, when you have a new puppy, you're, if you want the puppy to come to you when he's running away, it's best to turn around and go the other direction, and they follow you. And I, I think parents are, are in doubt about their own ability to lead. And I, I, if there's one message my book wants to convey, it's have more confidence. Um, develop some clarity about what your values are for your family. Work it out with your co-parent, whether you're living with him or her or not. Um, and then communicate that with confidence to your mm-hmm. kids, and, and more likely than not, they'll follow. They won't always follow. No, of course but not. finally they will, and you may have some conflicts along the way. Right. And that's you know, okay, Adelia, too. we're coming up on a break, so I just want you to start this topic, and we'll probably okay. have to continue it. But how do you begin the process of figuring out where you are on Diana Baumann's scale or on the scale that you're talking about, just trying to figure out what kind of a parent you are and what your relationship with authority is and your views on it. Wow, that's a good question. Um, I'll have to get, let me think about that for a moment. I think being paying attention to yourself and what you do is a place to start. I mean, for anything, and when I work with couples or with individuals, I do suggest and coach a lot of self-observation. Um, well, you know what, let, let, me, let, me just, let me just stop you right there. We'll take, take a yeah. quick break. I'm talking with Adelia Moore, who's the author of Being the Grown-Up, Love, Limits, and the Natural Authority of Parenthood. And again, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to obviously keep talking to Adelia about what being the grown-up means and about authority, but, and we're going to continue this idea about how, just, just for a minute, about what we can do as parents to try to figure out where we are, where we're coming from, and then we can figure out from there how to move forward and, and change the way that we are being in being the grown-up. I'm Armin Brant. You're listening to Positive Parenting. I'm in almost every school bus and classroom. I go to school with your children. We say the Pledge of Allegiance together. You see me around the neighborhood, and you tell me that I'm a pretty good kid. Well, I'm one out of every five children in America, and I'm struggling with hunger. This problem is closer than you think. My teacher tells me we can grow up to be whatever we want. I want to grow up to be someone who doesn't go to bed hungry. 
There's enough food in this country to feed everybody. Please visit feedingamerica.org today and find your local food bank for ways to help. Every dollar you donate helps provide eight meals for kids like me, quietly struggling with hunger. Together, we are Feeding America, brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armand Broad. If you're just joining us, talking with Adelia Moore, who's the author of Being the Grown-Up, Love, Limits, and the Natural Authority of Parenthood. So can we get back to this question of just a, a, a little bit of an exercise? I don't want to call it an exercise because I don't want to make it too much work, but, mm, but yeah. something that people can do for a, a little bit, perhaps, as they're just falling asleep or just to take a couple of minutes to say, you know, what kind of a parent am I? Where did I get my ideas about parenthood and about the relationships between kids? And because I think that's going to help to figure out how we can we can be better. Well, I would come at it a little differently. Although I think those are good questions. Um, you know, all of us respond to stories, and I what I do when I work with people on any issue is to ask them to tell me a story about something that happened yesterday, this morning, you know, something five years ago that I remember. In fact, I found when I was reading my book, I was fascinated um, that there were a number of moments that I remembered in my own um, development as a parent over the course of the 29 years I had kids at home. Um, So the example I use in my book to demonstrate the Diana Baumrin um, uh, sort of array is an example where a child has a lot of homework, has is getting up past her bedtime, you know, is up past her bedtime. Her dad comes in to talk to her about it, and I give three different ways that could play out. And one is you got to go to bed. I don't care what the teacher says. You know, I've had it. It's too late. So the, the child doesn't get a chance to answer. Another version is, oh, honey, I'm so sorry, you know, what, what's happening here? The honey child <laughs> explains, the dad offers to do the homework or write the note <laughs> or drive her to school oh, in the morning if she has to work, sort of bends over backwards to, um, to fulfill her needs without really considering what the larger picture is. And I would say the authoritative parent is very considerate of the child's sleep, but also is considering the fact that uh, perhaps this was an assignment she knew about, perhaps she started late, perhaps she was texting, you know, who knows what the reasons were. So maybe explores, you know, where had we get here? How did we get to 10 o'clock when your bedtime is 9 and you've got this report you haven't finished? Um, and maybe you know, give her some advice about how to go for 10 or 15 more minutes and say, you know, sounds like we're going to have to talk about the routines, the homework routines, but for this report, uh, you may have to let it go, go to bed now and, um, and, and suffer through whatever the consequences. So it would be sort of both caring about her needs, offering to give her some help on those needs, but um, also acknowledging, you know, the system, the school, the routine. So, you know, that would sort of be a an example of a way you could talk through. So you might say to yourself, well, 
and the last thing that happened with us, uh, you know, the dishwasher was supposed to be emptied, and it isn't. Do I just do it? You know, do I start nagging at the kid but not really mean it? Do I um, negotiate with him about when he's going to do it? And um, negotiation isn't all bad, but there has to be a bottom line. So it's sort of saying, you know, do I do I have a bottom line? Where is it? What happens when that when I'm challenged? How do I react? Mm -hmm. And I think it's tricky. It's not something I don't think it's almost ever too late. But I think it's tricky. So I don't know if that helps. Maybe you want to ask me a question or two to sort of draw that out a little more. No, I, I think that, that that's a good place to start. Um, I, I think you know, we, I don't want to spend too much time on the analysis part of it or trying yeah. to figure out where you are. But I, I think I, I want to move on to some of the other ideas in the book that you talk about that are, that are particularly provocative. One about bodies regulating each other and and how the way that we do something can trigger something in the child that in turns triggers something in us and pretty soon a situation can just be completely out of control where it might have started off as a perfectly lovely day and all yeah. of a sudden there's an explosion and and everybody's sitting around looking at each other and nobody knows quite how we got quite here how they got there <laughs> yeah. yeah well i'm so glad you brought that up it, it's it's such a central idea to me and it's something that sometimes gets lost in even the discussions I've had about the book, because we can get stuck on authority. And um, but this idea of regulation has become very um, trendy, if you might say, in, in psychology in recent years, mostly because of our increasing knowledge about um, the nervous system, and uh, particularly um, the group of researchers um, in attachment and it's usually attachment and emotional regulation kind of going together. And, and the idea is that not just parents and children, but, you know, couples, all, all people are tuned into each other. And essentially, you know, we want to get along with each other. Humans do want to cooperate. But we do have things that trigger us and make us nervous, and we're sort of on the lookout for prey, as it were, something that's bothersome. Um, so I think being aware of that, being aware of how it's carried in your voice, how it's carried in your body um, is is crucial to getting along, and sometimes, uh, and I, I counsel this <laughs> to almost anyone, including myself and my husband, and we've been, you know, married for 47 years and together 51, so we know each other quite well and we're quite tuned into each other. But sometimes I'll just say, let's just have a hug, because we clearly are <laughs> we're not getting anywhere where we're going, and that's a wonderful thing to do with a child too, and can be disarming, um, or a touch. You know, touch on the shoulder. Touch is an enormously underestimated hmm, part yeah. of um, parenthood and of parenting. I could even say, you know, that that we we get we sort of get on each of us on our side of the boundary, and and we sort of holding fast rather than trying to figure out a way that we can actually connect. So yeah. regulation is is a way um, that our bodies have of you know, working with each other as we as we work hard to stay connected, because that's really what we all want to do. You know, in part of the staying connected thing, I'm wondering, you mentioned that it's never too late to start. And so that immediately gets me thinking about teenagers and, and parents who might be listening who have not done a terribly good job of, of making boundaries between themselves and their kids as far as authority goes. Mm -hmm. How do you begin to have a conversation with a child? It doesn't have to be a teenager. It could be younger. But probably yeah. so that they can under they have to be old enough to understand this that maybe some things are going to change in our relationship that I I really 
I need you to do X, Y, Z, or I need you to listen to me, or here's why I'm going to be taking the lead, to get back to that analogy. Well, I, um, I would say a couple things. One is a child is almost never too young to talk about this. You would just talk about it in a different way. Right. And that comes quite naturally. You know, we, we, we are pretty good humans at figuring out how to change our language in relation to who we're talking to. And I would say, and again, I, I would uh, generalize this to almost any conversation that you're nervous about or that has the high stakes, is number one, don't have it when you're in the middle of a fight or even just after a fight, find a time. And I used to like to talk to my kids when I was driving them somewhere because we didn't have to look at each other, and driving them at night was even better. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, and so one thing is sort of be, be, be shoulder to shoulder, as it were, be, be um, almost on equal footing. And secondly, to really have curiosity, because even if you ultimately have a bottom line that you need to communicate, if you're curious, you're going to sort of... Um, your child is more likely to buy in because they believe that you, you do want to know what they think and you want to know what's been going on for them. And if you do that, because there's a lot we don't know about each other, especially when our kids are teens and have this very complicated world of relationships that they're experiencing. Um, and you don't know until you ask how you may be affecting them. So in that way, it's, it's, it's so different from authority the way you think about it. But I, to go back to your core thing that you seem to tapped into that I love is this idea of taking the lead, um, that you're also offering guidance, and you do have more experience in the world, but you don't have their experience. So that's where the right. curiosity comes in. Right. That's an and, important and I, thing. I, you I, don't have their experience. Let me add one thing yeah. to, to both that and to the bodies, which I, I wanted to mention and didn't, that I think is a wonderful concept. There's a, neurologist, a neuroscientist named Bud Craig. Uh, from whom I learned, and I don't know if it's his term, but from whom I learned the idea of global emotional moment. And that is at any moment, your whole nervous system, your gut, your brain is in a global emotional moment. And that's what you're tuning into. And that's your curiosity could lead you to that. So it's a little off, but I, I just wanted to add that because I think it's a wonderful thing to remember. You know, tired, hungry, irritable. Yeah. Anxious. Adelia Moore is the author of Being the Grown-Up, Love, Limits, and the Natural Authority of Parenthood. Really fascinating book. There's all sorts of wonderful things in here that will get you thinking about your being a grown-up and your parenthood generally in a probably different way. Adelia, thanks for joining us. Great to have you. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.